0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 99, Dr. Larry Hurtado on Early High Christology. Before we get into today's interview, I wanted to just mention that I've recently initiated a Facebook group for the Trinity's podcast. You can find it by just searching for Trinity's podcast on Facebook or you can go to facebook.com/groups/trinities/ and that will take you there. Anyone's welcome to join. As I'm making this episode, there are 211 members of the group. And the discussion really roiling. can't always keep up with the discussion between this, other blogs, and the Trinity's blog. But uh, I'll do my best. I really appreciate those of you who listen. I want to be a part of your life to encourage you, to answer questions that you have, and to learn from you. I wanted to start with some feedback that one of my Facebook friends named Pierre gave me. He says, quote, Michael Heiser seems confused as to his exact position. Which of the following best describes his position? Trinitarian? Binitarian, Arian. If he is using the passage in Exodus 20 as an indication of divine plurality, would that not make Jesus, in his view, a malach, an angel, thus siding with Arius? How thus would he circumvent passages in Hebrews 1 and 2 where angelic Christology is polemicized against? Do we not only see a development of binity within the Logos theologians, which was still at that time a form of subordinationism, With respect, Michael Heiser seems to be confused as to how his incarnational theory works and seems to fail to adequately represent his position with clarity. It's almost as if he is adopting all views so as not to be refuted by any of them. End quote. Pierre, uh, I, I don't think that last remark is quite fair. You have to keep in mind that Dr. Heiser is a language and text scholar, and so he's always approaching things sort of from the angle of interpreting particular texts in the Hebrew Bible. He's not going to come at it uh from a, a view of 10,000 meters up, you know, from the sky like a systematic type person would, but he definitely is a trinitarian, but he doesn't want to say quite that the Old Testament teaches the Trinity. He wants to say that it was a kind of natural reaction to various passages in the Old Testament, especially these angel of the Lord ones, that there was some kind of plurality within God, at least two although he also mentions in other contexts that he thinks there is some not sure how he would put it intimation hint of the Holy Spirit as a third person within God. So I'm not clear quite how he thinks Old Testament revelation is related to the Trinity. He doesn't want to say it outright teaches the Trinity, but he thinks it in some sense laid a groundwork for that later revelation. He does repeatedly compare these angel of the Lord passages to the idea that God is incarnate in Jesus. Again, I'm not quite sure what the relation is that he thinks is between those two things. I don't think he says it's exactly the same idea. I would throw out there just this distinction. Are we going to interpret the angel of the Lord passages as involving an angel, a messenger, a self, a created thinking being who is God's agent, an intermediary who is acting on behalf of God and then can therefore act with God's authority and speak first person things that God wants said and things like that, kind of like a prophet but angelic, not human. Is that what we think is going on with the angel of the Lord passages or are we going to take all of them or some of them to involve a theophany where God just appears as a man just by his omnipotent power, he projects out the sight, the sound, the feeling, the smell even of a man. It's like a holograph kind of thing, but more advanced, and that he just appears in that form. But if that's what's going on, then God is not literally becoming a man, he's just appearing as if he were one. And so this would contrast with the mainstream Catholic tradition that the Lagos becomes human by entering into a mysterious union with a complete human nature. So the Logos is supposed to become human. If God is just projecting out this appearance, then he wouldn't be human. He would just be appearing as if he were one, kind of like a shapeshifter in science fiction. Now, if you took this second view, then you wouldn't be saying that this angel of the lord was really an angel as as a being distinct from god it wouldn't be a being the angel of the lord it would be an appearance i think he thinks that the angel is the pre-human jesus you see this in the tradition going back to justin martyr i'm not sure what he would say about hebrews 1 and 2 denouncing angelic christology and i'm not sure how much he wants to agree with the subordinationist Unitarian theologians of the 100s and 200s, people like Justin or Novation or Irenaeus or the Logos theologians. As a Trinitarian, he must think that the 4th century developments are broadly on track. There's a tendency among Trinitarians to kind of skip over the pre-Nicene mainstream theologians. I'm pretty sure he thinks that these ideas about divine plurality arose early, and they arose just on the basis of the Hebrew Bible, and that by Jesus' time, these were really mainstream that any Jew would have thought that God, in some sense, might be plural. Me, I'm not so sure. I know that some of the two powers material is post-Christian. I'm not quite sure how much of it is pre-Christian, but I think it has to do with Platonic speculations about there having to be an intermediary between God and the world. So that God couldn't have directly created, he must have had a being which stands halfway in between the created and the uncreated to directly create for him. We talked about this somewhat in episodes 74, 75, and 76 of the Trinity's podcast when we examined the views of Justin Martyr. It seems to me there had to have been some Greek influence to really get this two powers stuff going. On the face of it, this talk of the angel of the Lord is just about a messenger through whom God interacts with the ancient Hebrews. Dr. Heiser sees more there than I do. Here are some comments he made in a recent interview with Dr. Michael Brown on his show Line of Fire, and this is about 33 minutes into the episode, and I'll put a link to that on the blog post for this episode. In context, they're discussing how to refute Jehovah's Witnesses, an ever-popular topic, Dr. Heiser says that he likes to take them not only to John 1, but to Genesis 48.
2: The last time one came to my house, the first question I asked the person was, "Is the God of Israel an angel?" And of course, no, no, no. You know, angels are created beings. You know, you know, no way. So then I went to Genesis 48: 15 and 16. Jacob is blessing, you know, the children of Joseph, and and he says, "May the God." You know, the, and, and it's ha Elohim in, uh, in, in the text, so they can't really deny that this is the God of Israel, but the, there's three stanzas to this. He says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, and may the God which fed me all my life long to this day. And the third stanza is, the angel who redeemed me from all evil. And then, then here comes the verb, bless these boys. Verb is singular. So if the writer wanted to make a distinction between the God of Israel and this particular angel, he would have used a plural. But he doesn't. He uses a singular, which fuses them together. So tell me again, is the God of, a, a God of Israel an angel? And, and the look on their face is like, well, oh, I never saw that one before. You know, that kind of thing. And, and then I, I use that to say, well, I, I agree the God of Israel is not an angel, but this particular angel happens to be God. This is Yahweh in embodied form, and that's going to work itself on into the New Testament, into the Incarnation. And then we start looking at other passages about where the language used of this particular angel in the Old Testament is also picked up by New Testament writers and attributed to Jesus.
1: Okay, well, that's one way to take it. You might think that the author of Genesis is identifying God and the angel of the Lord because he uses a singular verb form. I don't see why you have to take it that way, though. I mean, the writer principally has in view God, and then he invokes a blessing from the angel, and this is the one through whom, or if you like, the manifestation through which God blesses. So, he's invoking the blessing of God. He mentions the angel. Why isn't he just talking about God blessing through the angel? Dr. Heiser says he doesn't use a plural verb form so as to distinguish between the two figures, the angel and God, but he doesn't need to distinguish between the two of them. He just called one of them the angel, the messenger of the other. So they're just presupposed to be distinct. I don't see any fusing or merging of them as implied by this. Admittedly, it's jarring to mention two subjects in the sentence and then use a singular verb, but it's understandable if... The main subject is really God, and he's thinking that God just blesses through, that is, by means of, this angel. Again, whether the angel is a being or an appearance, either way. I suggest it makes sense read in that way. Anyway, Dr. Heiser has a lot more to say, and on the blog post I'll put some other links to Dr. Heiser talking about divine plurality in the Hebrew Bible. You can judge whether or not he makes his case. I do really like and respect Dr. Heiser and maybe we can have him on again sometime to talk about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. So let's move on to my interview with Dr. Hurtado. Dr. Larry Hurtado is Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature and Theology at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Born in Kansas City, Missouri, over the course of his career, he taught at Regents College in Vancouver, Canada, and the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, ending at the University of Edinburgh. In 2011, he retired as director of the Center for the Study of Christian Origins there. He's a fellow of the Royal Society in Edinburgh and has served as president of the British New Testament Society. The author of many scholarly articles and reviews, his books include a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, 1990. Lord Jesus Christ, Devotion to Jesus and Earliest Christianity, 2003. How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Historical Questions About Earliest Devotion to Jesus, 2005. The Earliest Christian Artifacts, Manuscripts and Christian Origins, 2006. And God and New Testament Theology, in 2010. He's perhaps best known for his book, One God, One Lord, Early Christian Devotion and Ancient Jewish Monotheism, the third edition of which is out in November 2015. He also frequently shares his thoughts on recent scholarship with the wider public at his personal blog at larryhurtado.wordpress.com. He's here with us today to talk about his work on early high Christology. Dr. Hurtado, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Dr. Hurtado, how did you come to choose a career as a New Testament scholar focusing on Christian origins?
0: Well, as probably happens with many people, uh, in my case, it didn't happen all at once. But over time, I, uh, after doing master's work, was invited to do some teaching for a couple of years in a small college, just as a kind of uh, kind of pinch hitter for some other people who had uh, had to take time off. And uh, that convinced me that uh, I wanted to wind up in academia. So I planned on doing PhD work and eventually got into a program. Uh, in, ironically, initially, after doing PhD work, I was, I was pastoring a small church for a while and um, decided maybe I'd just stay there. But then out of the blue, after about three or four or five years, came an invitation to go to Regent College in Vancouver. I took it up, took up that, that invitation, and uh, thought that this was, this was where my, uh, my life was being pointed. And from there, it just it's just uh, gone from, from one institution and one decade to another.
1: Dr. Hurtado, much of your work is centered around the idea of early high Christology. Can you tell us what is that idea, and in your view, why is this important?
0: Well, early high Christology is is a sort of a term that uh, came up in conversation, and it's a kind of um, quickie label, I guess. I more frequently, uh, in my own work, refer to uh, Jesus devotion or devotion to Jesus. The term Christology is a classical theological term which, which refers to beliefs or doctrines, in this case, about Christ. And that's certainly included in what I'm doing. But uh, from a very early point on, in, from the 70s onward, I came to uh, feel very strongly that we need to include also, in addition to beliefs or, or, or intellectual developments in early Christianity, we need to take into account also their devotional practices, worship practices. So I use the term Christ devotion or Jesus devotion as a broader umbrella term under which we include Christology, beliefs about Jesus, but also devotional practices and the role of Christ even in, in ethical and, and political considerations of the early church. So, so that's what I mean by it. Early high Christology is a term that I didn't coin it. It was a term coined by someone else and famously applied to us by, by one of my late and lamented colleagues, Alan Siegel. So for me, it it signals, as I say, this wider body of phenomena, beliefs, and early Christian practices that uh, in which Jesus functions as central.
1: Is it fair to say that when you when you refer to early high Christology, it mostly focuses on Jesus as an object of worship?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, that that's for me what uh, the <laughs> the highness of anything that we're talking about is, is that Jesus is placed on a level in early Christian belief and discourse, and more, more importantly, I've argued, even in their worship practices, placed on a level that is comparable only with the level occupied by God. It's a high view of, of Jesus in the sense that it, it puts him on a level that, that is comparable to the level occupied by God in many respects. So particularly in worship, um, we have lots of other, as I demonstrated in, in my 1988 book that you mentioned, One God, One Lord. We have um, lots of examples in Jewish tradition of what I refer to often as uh, divine agent figures or principal agent figures who uh, serve as God's chief agent, his, his uh, executor of, of his will in various aspects. Sometimes these figures are a very high lofty angel, such as Michael. In other cases, revered uh, Old Testament figures such as Moses or Enoch can be described as playing this kind of role. So we have other examples of these. And in some cases, these figures are described in the most amazingly exalted ways. In some scenes, when a human seer is pictured as as, as having a vision of one of these figures, indeed, he will sometimes think that he's had a vision of God and will, will bow down to, to offer the, the figure worship. So even visually and in terms of their their glorious appearance, uh, they can be easily confused for God, it seems. So they would naturally bow down to offer worship. And in several of these scenes, the figure in question will demand that the, the seer not do that. Do not do this. I am not God. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that uh, the dividing line in these texts, the the red line issue in ancient Jewish religious life, above all, was worship in the hard sense of the term, or what scholars would call cultic worship, that is organized, deliberate reverence for someone as, as having kind of divine status. These figures all have divine authority, divine, you know, uh, glorious appearance. In some cases, they're pictured as sitting on a throne like that of gods and so on. But in none of the examples that I could find, is there anything like the kind of pattern of uh, devotional practices, worship practices, such as we have directed to Jesus. So that was the key historical finding in that 1988 book, that in many other respects, early Christian discourse about Jesus can be compared with the discourse that we have about these other figures. Sometimes figures are described as agents of God's creation of the world, for example, or agents of God's eschatological Redemption and salvation, very similar to the kind of roles that, that Jesus plays. But the crucial thing that I could not find a parallel for, as I say, was the pattern, a sort of constellation of devotional worship practices in which Jesus features in earliest Christian texts. Everybody recognizes that there was a high Christology in early Christianity. Everybody recognizes that. Certainly by even, even uh, my most uh, dogged uh, uh, critics or opponents would grant that by the late first century, certainly uh, we have Jesus being treated as a divine figure and being given worship. The question is, and that's fairly early, I mean that's within the first several decades. So the question is how early? Those of us who take what we call the early high Christology are saying really early, that is so early that already by our earliest sources, in this case, the undisputed letters of Paul, such as 1 Thessalonians, that already by that point, that is to say within the first 15 to 20 years after Jesus' execution at the latest, already at that point, a devotional practice and a body of beliefs about Jesus that are very high indeed are already taken for granted. The Early high Christology that we're talking about seems to have appeared more, I've described it more as a kind of volcanic eruption than any kind of incremental seepage. It exploded very early. Indeed, one of the sort of um, influential figures for me and for numerous other people, Martin Hengel, has argued that this early uh, belief and, and attitude toward Jesus as sharing in some way in divine glory probably erupted within the earliest months or very earliest years of the Christian movement after Jesus' execution. I have agreed with that and indeed have argued that that may have been a major factor that prompted the rather severe, in his own words, violent opposition to the early Jewish Christian movement reported on by Paul, that this may have been a factor that uh, provoked his uh, disgust and very firm efforts to try to destroy what he regarded as a dangerous religious movement. As I've pointed out numerous times, uh, one of the figures whose works I have, uh, uh, I have engaged over the years, the great German scholar Wilhelm Buset, whose book uh, Curios Christos is an acknowledged classic in 20th century New Testament scholarship. Uh, Buset, who was a, a key figure in the old history of religion school, and uh, their views are, are some of the views with which I've uh, taken some issue. But the one thing to say is that Bousset himself granted an early high Christology. He certainly agreed that a treatment of Jesus as, a kind of, uh, as, as occupying a kind of divine status, as kurios, as uh, to use the Greek term as lord, of the gathered worship circle, that this exploded very early and indeed so early that uh, it was already there before Paul was converted. So very similar time frame. The crucial difference is that Bousset argued this could not have happened in a Jewish, thoroughly Jewish cultural setting, such as Jerusalem or Roman Judea. And so he argued it exploded very early, but it had to have happened in a diaspora or Gentile setting, such as Antioch or Damascus. And the crucial thing was he argued that in those settings, The pagan religious setting of the cities in which you had various demigods and heroes and so on facilitated the eruption of uh, this early high Christology in those settings and in those circles. But it could not have happened in thoroughly Jewish settings such as Jerusalem. The crucial difference, therefore, between my position and that of Busset On this matter would be that I think that there's very strong evidence indicating that this uh, eruption of um, devotion to Jesus as divine actually did begin in thoroughly Jewish circles of Jesus followers and in Jerusalem and in Roman Judea.
1: So, in the first 100, 150 years of Christianity, there was this massive demographic shift. It went from being a 100% Jewish movement to being 99% Gentile movement.
0: Well, I don't know that we can say 99 or what. It's interesting that when you, just as a footnote there, a pedantic footnote, you know, if you look at something like Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo mm-hmm. in the middle of the second century, he's asked, are there Jewish followers of this uh, movement. And and uh, Justin says, yes, and there's more than one kind. There are groups of Jewish followers, he says, who observe the Torah, yes. circumcise their sons, mm-hmm. but they do not require us to do so. Mm-hmm. And then he refers to other circles of Jewish Jesus followers who will not have fellowship with Gentiles unless they observe the Torah also. And he says, well, we we can't, you know, we can't have fellowship with them. The impression one gets from Justin is that in the middle of the second century there are already not there still are not only circles of Jewish believers but even different kinds of Jewish believers mm-hmm. uh, that he that he knows about. So it's just that most of our literature, almost all of our literature that survives, come from Gentile Christians, right. and so it may give us a somewhat distorted view as to the demographics of Christianity in the second century. But certainly, as you move into the later centuries. By the By the third century and so on, it does appear that uh, an identifiably Jewish Christianity is on the wane and is probably already declining in the second century to be sure.
1: Yeah, and so there's this demographic shift and then it's pretty clear that after Justin particularly Greek philosophy seems to become more and more important, more and more incorporated into Christian thinking about God and Jesus. And so there was this older view in scholarship that surely there must have been this very long evolution in Christology that Jesus started out as a man and Messiah, sure, but then only much later was considered to be divine. And that's what you're disagreeing with, in a sense. You're saying, no, in a sense, he was considered divine right the earliest sources that we have.
0: Yes, and as I say, actually, uh, the the old history of religion school, which is the classic work on this, uh, classic body of work on this subject, agreed that uh, although a kind of radical, in some sense, Hellenization or philosophical development of of Greek philosophy happens in the second century and thereafter, and Christian discourse undergoes a kind of sea change in which it, it very heavily engages and is expressed in terms of philosophical currents of that time. Nevertheless, he, he agreed that, that a treatment of Jesus as divine, a treatment of him as a recipient of worship, as the divine Kyrios, who in some sense shares the glory and stature of God, began in the earliest years of, of Christianity, within the first uh, two, three, four years of Christianity. It's just that he felt that it, it could not have happened in a, in, a, in a Jewish setting. It had to have happened in a Gentile setting such as Antioch or, or Damascus, where pagan ideas, not, not Greek philosophical ideas, but pagan practices of gods and demigods and divine heroes and that sort of thing, popular religious ideas of that kind, uh, were influential in making Jesus divine. So there's a sense in which, in, in his argument, the early Christians in those settings came to treat Jesus as divine in some sense in order to make him competitive, so to speak, with uh, the divine heroes of, of those pagan cities.
1: It strikes me, Dr. Hurtado, that you are focusing on issues of uh, function and practice. So, you know, it's one thing to, uh, in some sense, honor or worship somebody. But you're saying what really is the difference between early Christianity and other things is that there is central cultic worship. Worship in the full religious sense. In our religious meetings, we worship Jesus. um, and, And then that's what you're calling high Christology. Now, some people, when they talk about high Christology, some some theologians, some other kinds of scholars, they mean that Jesus is God himself or that Jesus has a divine nature. Mm -hmm. Are you attempting to remain neutral about the metaphysical essence of Jesus and just, uh, well, let's talk about function and uh, the role that he plays in, in Christian life?
0: Well, I'm primarily interested in, in trying to do as, as good a, a, a historical, descriptive, and analytical work as I can do. So it's, I'm, I'm not primarily engaged in constructive theology, but in historical description and analysis. And I'm prisoner to the data. <laughs> it's just the case that in the earliest texts that we have, such as in the New Testament, and really on into the early second century, uh, well into the second century, the nature of early Christian religious discourse does not uh, focus on and is not, well, put it this way, is not conducted in the terms of Greek philosophy. And so questions of, you know, what we call ontological questions, questions of, you know, does Jesus and God have the same essence? For example, Greek, ouzia or uh, whatever, or, or, or Latin, substantia. I mean, these terms just do not appear in early Christian discourse in the way they do later. That is, in, in, in talking about Jesus, you don't have any statements in the first century or so that say Jesus and God share the same usia or substantia. They, they don't use those categories. So... If you say, well, how did the early early Christians think that Jesus shared the same divine essence? I have to say, I'm sorry, the term divine essence isn't a part of their mental furniture. They just don't operate with those categories. So it's a moot question. We can only answer the questions that they put and we can only deal with them in the terms in which they deal with them. If we're practicing historical work and the way they describe Jesus, for example, they speak of him as being given, for example, to cite Philippians 2, the name above every name. And in that text and another text, it's clear that the term Kyrios is given to Jesus, pictured as given to Jesus. Jesus is made curios says acts two uh, is given this kind of office and status by God at his, at at uh, the resurrection and and uh, the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament is typically presented as including also this kind of heavenly glorious exaltation of him to this new status so he is given the status of curios he's given he shares the divine name he is pictured as sharing and reflecting the divine glory doxa he is pictured as sharing the divine throne seated at god's right hand those are the ways in which they describe jesus divine status rather than talking about essence or being or things like that in one sense one can say it's simply anachronistic to ask the question, you know, did the early Christians think of Jesus and God as sharing the same nature, so to speak, that, that way of putting the question is an anachronistic question. And you just have to say, I'm sorry, that isn't the way they talk. On the other hand, you can say, looking at the vocabulary or the cupboard, you might say, what was in the cupboard, the theological cupboard that they were drawing upon, the vocabulary they were drawing upon, but dominantly from the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, They do describe Jesus in terms that are otherwise uh, terms used to describe uh, and distinguish God. You know, for example, God has a unique name. And the name of God carries this powerful sort of significance in several Old Testament passages, such as Deuteronomy, for example. The temple pictured as a place where the name of God dwells and God's name is to be kept sacred and holy. Uh, the glory of God, of course, features in Exodus and in Isaiah and in a number of places as a kind of visual uh, expression of who God is. And God is pictured as the ultimate king who sits on a heavenly throne who rules over all. So in saying that Jesus is given a name like that of God, in saying that he reflects and shares God's own glory, in saying that he sits with God on God's throne... They're according Jesus, the highest kind of status that they can, it seems to me, within the categories that are available to them. But it would be anachronistic to say, well, can we ask whether they believe that Jesus, therefore, was the same nature of God? That's a different language game from a different time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we can say yes or no. We just have to say, sorry, (laughs) can't answer that question in those terms.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It strikes me, though, they could have... um in their own terminology, they could have answered a question like this. We could have asked them, do you think that the Father and Jesus are the same God? Uh... You might think that's a paraphrase of, uh, does Jesus have the divine we usia? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's arguable, but anyway, I think they could have asked that, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't they have denied that Jesus was the same God as the Father?
0: I think they would find that a strange question, yes. And, and probably uh, would say, hmm, that, that's a really strange question. <laughs> if you look at their discourse, you know, they, you know, l- pick, pick a, a text that represents what many people would say is a real mountaintop high <laughs> Christological text, the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And pick a text where the Gospel of John pictures Jesus himself supposedly praying and talking about himself and God. And you have a statement, you know, this is eternal life, John 17, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now there, in the grammar of the text, you seem to have two distinguished but intricately related figures. Mm -hmm. The only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. And in the same text, he says, you know, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was made. So, This is a Jesus who professes pre-existence and a kind of glorious pre-existence before the world was made. Indeed, in John 1, he's pictured as the unique agent of creation. He is pictured as the unique one through whom God is revealed. No one has seen God at any time. He who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed him, has declared him. So he has an absolutely unique status linked with God in a unique kind of way And yet also, in some sense, conceptually uh, distinguished from God, whom often in the Gospel of John, of course, in order to make that distinction clear, Gospel of John talks about the Father and the Son. But to talk about Father and Son, you still have two distinguishable, albeit intricately related figures.
1: I mean, it seems to me that in many places in the New Testament, they presuppose that there are some differences between Jesus and the one God. For instance, in 1 Timothy, you know, it seems that God, Paul thinks that God, or the author, they think that God is essentially immortal. But then Jesus died. So, a being which is by its essence immortal can't die. That, that's a contradiction, right?
0: Well, again, that's a Greek notion. That's what the Greeks think. Gods by nature are immortal. And it may well be that, you know, that, uh, that, th- that the author may have worked with that. I don't know because he doesn't elaborate it. But the other thing to say, of course, is that Jesus, the figure we're talking about, is unquestionably, and it has to be said in terms of traditional, even later theological development, one has to say not only unquestionably, but uh, thoroughly human and irrevocably so. Even though in the Gospel of John and elsewhere he's pictured as having a heavenly pre-existence, a pre-human pre-existence in some kind of way. So the, he, there is a, there is a um, heavenly pre-existent being, entity of some sort. But uh, this heavenly pre-existent being who is in in, more faith, in the form of God, says Philippians 2, becomes human, becomes uh, a servant of God, and irrevocably so. That certainly, you know, as a human, he is, he is um, mortal and capable of death. And the New Testament seems to say, and it was essential that that was so. Because his, his mortality, his death is described in the New Testament as a redemptive mortality or a redemptive death.
1: So even if a Jewish person in that era would not have put it quite the way I did, which is to say that God is by his essence immortal, they would have thought that God can't die. absolutely yeah yeah and they also would have assumed that well god isn't a human yeah so then there's there's two contrasts between jesus he he's emphatically asserted to be a human in all the new testament particularly in john
0: yeah
1: Uh, he's an anthropos uh explicitly you have to wonder i wonder when i read john if there was some kind of incipient uh docetism starting to appear there but
0: that has been argued by some people, and uh, and it's it's possible. Uh, I think it's a little more clear in one John, but uh, but some people have argued that it's already there in the Gospel of John. In any case, the Gospel of John, of course, is reflects the kind of amazingly so reflects the kind of um, complexity in the good sense of the word uh, that we have in early Christian discourse about Jesus, because it yet uh, as you say emphatically, unhesitatingly insists. That he really became human, that he really was human, uh, capable of death and capable of sorrow and so on. At the same time, the same text emphasizes, as they say, that he was with God in the beginning. He is the one through whom, as Logos, the one through whom God made the world. And in, in the discourses that are put in Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John, he is saying things like, you know, before Abraham was, I am and... I and the Father are one and so on. And yet also says, but I do nothing except what the Father has given me or what the Father has shown me and so on. So there's, there's both this inextricable linkage uh, of the two and, and a unique uh, linkage to God ascribed to the Son, Jesus, and at the same time, a clear distinction between them. And the difficulty that some people have is in affirming both those things. If you get your handle on the distinction thing, you also have to affirm the unique connection. If you affirm the unique connection too much without affirming the distinction, then you, you go off the rail in, in, in another direction. As far as representing adequately what texts such as the Gospel of John are trying to say. They're walking on two legs at the same time.
1: Speaking of the distinction between the two, if somebody asked me, really, is Jesus worshipped in the New Testament? I mean, come on, how how can these Jews be worshiping a man? I would say that the smoking gun, most obvious, undeniable examples of this would be Philippians two and Revelation five. Paul has uh, in Philippians two that someday every knee will bow to Jesus, and what is that if not worship? And then Revelation five, there, he's worshipped alongside God in this heavenly vision. What's interesting is in both cases he's also distinguished from God because in Philippians two, the worship that's given to Jesus is to the glory of the Father. Yep. And in Revelation five, you know he's worshipped because of his service to the Father. The Father hmm. is the one Creator in, in Revelation four, and then. The lamb is brought into the throne room, and he's—they sing a song to him on the basis of winning people from all nations for God. So, yeah, it's worship for sure, but still, there, there's the distinction between them, also.
0: Yes, and uh, this is one of the, the questions again. This, this in a question of you know, was Jesus really worshipped? So, my my good friend and and sometimes sparring partner, uh, Jimmy Dunn wrote a book recently, did the, early, did the first Christians or early Christians worship Jesus? And his preferred answer, although it seems to me if you read through the book he gives, um, he, he gives nuanced answers that don't always, um, don't always say the same thing. In some pages he seems to say yes and other page says no, but it's clear that his preferred answer is no, not really. But uh, if you look carefully at what he seems to be, what he seems to mean by that, that negative view, I think he seems to me to mean they did not worship Jesus as an entity or deity in his own right, so to speak. They did not worship him as a second distinguishable God. They worshiped God and insofar as Jesus was reverenced, he was reverenced or worshiped with reference to God the Father and on account of his connection to God the Father. And with that I would entirely agree. It's just that um, when when Dunn says the Christians really didn't worship Jesus as such, his language, uh, what he seems to mean is they didn't worship him as a second deity. And, and And I would say, well, of course not. Of course not. There's only one deity for early Christians. Jesus is seen as the unique expression, as the unique agent. Uh, of, this, uh, of this one God. And it is God's exaltation, in their view, God's exaltation of Jesus to divine glory, such as you have in Philippians uh, 2 and in Revelation 5, as you say, in other passages. It is God's exaltation of him to divine glory and affirmation of him as the unique heavenly son seated at God's right hand and so on. It is that divine action which uh, authenticates, and I think in the early Christian mind, uh, not only authenticated, but actually demanded th- in response, uh, worship and reverence uh, to be given to him. You, you asked earlier, if we were to ask a question for a particular question of Christians, and I said that it might be an anachronistic way of putting things. Let me paraphrase another question, which I think doesn't appear explicitly as such, but I think is the sort of question they could have engaged And that is, what is your basis for reverencing Jesus? If you were to direct that to Paul or to early Christians, what is your basis or how dare you do this? Mm -hmm. I think their answer would be because God requires it. God has exalted Jesus and now requires him to be reverenced. And so a refusal to reverence Jesus is disobedience to the one God.
1: I find that a lot of people, a lot of philosophers, people into apologetics, theologians, They think that it's just sort of true by definition that worship is only given to God. And they think that, so because that's true by, worship just means worship as as the one God. That's just what worship means in their mind. And so then if anybody's worship, that just means they're the one God. But that's not how you see it. That's not how, in your view, the New Testament writers see it.
0: I don't think they put it in that way. Uh, as I say, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your outlook, I guess, constructive theology or the attempt to try to formulate what Christians ought to believe and in particular what Christians ought to believe in any contemporary situation such as today for the last 1,700 years or more has been heavily influenced by the theological discussions, theological discourse that, Emerged from particularly the early third century onward, mm-hmm. and perhaps even more so. I mean, typically, or very, very often, in, in talking to theologians, if you start saying, "Well, okay, let's talk about Christology," they will commence the discussion with the Cappadocian Fathers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's perfectly legitimate. If you say, "Well, this is where I want to start the discussion," or these are the these are the categories in which I want to frame the discussion, okay, be free to do that uh, if you want to. But I guess I would say, as somebody who practices more of a kind of historical mode, just be aware that you know that to start with Gregory of Nyssa or whatever is to start with a, uh, from the standpoint of Christian origins, a somewhat developed and chronologically secondary stage of, of Christian reflection. Uh, it's not to say that it's right or wrong, it's just to say that it's it's secondary, it's it's chronologically secondary and developed and, and it would be dangerous to use, therefore, those categories from 4th, 5th, 6th centuries as ways, as lenses, so to speak, through which to read the New Testament or other early Christian texts. They deserve to be read in their own categories, in their own terms. And um, I think that one could say, to turn, the, to turn the tables around, I think that if you start with the New Testament writings and the early Christian texts of that period, given subsequent historical developments, you can see why it was thought necessary to, to, to engage the kind of questions that Christians begin engaging in the third century and thereafter. They couldn't avoid them. The New Testament uh, treats Jesus as the you know, uh, as, as a rightful recipient of cultic devotion. And so as you said earlier, the question is, well, wait a minute, I thought you guys were monotheists. Uh, you only worship you're only supposed to worship one God. How can you worship this figure Jesus as well? Doesn't that make you a ditheist? And in terms of practice, there is a clear dyadic pattern to their, I think, a clear dyadic or two-ish pattern to their worship practices in which they direct their devotion to God the Father and to Jesus. Doesn't that make you a diatheist or a worshiper of two gods? And, and, and in the Gospel of John and in, and in other early Christian texts, early Christians are struggling powerfully to try to resist that charge and to say, absolutely not. We are true, use our terminology, we are true monotheists. We only believe in. we only hold one God we hold to Jesus as rightful recipient of worship also because the one God requires it. There's a sense in which every Christological statement that you have in the earliest period, certainly, and every devotional practice directed toward Jesus in the earliest period has a fundamental theological basis or theocentric basis. Every belief and every uh, reverential action given to Jesus rests upon the firm conviction about what God has done and what God requires. God has raised him from the dead. Well, first, God sent forth his son, they would say. Sent him into the world, says Paul, and says John, and other writers. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him to heavenly glory, and God now requires that he be reverenced. So you notice in every stage of the game, there's a fundamental theocentric basis for the nature of early Christian belief and practice. Now, when you move into the third century and so on, as, as people begin trying to articulate Christian faith in categories of the larger intellectual environment of that time, questions of being, of essence, and trying to defend a so-called monotheistic stance in those terms almost forced them to engage questions uh, of being, if you have two entities, God the Father and Jesus, isn't that two beings? And so then you have to say, no, no, only one being. Though there are two, there's really one essence. Though two distinguishable, to use their language, they develop, as you know, personae, but one substantia, uh, one substance, but different persons. So they're trying to hold together this one, one-ishness, twoishness similar to the way in which the early similar to the way in which you have it in Paul and in, the, and in the gospel of John but in very different categories.
1: So what you're saying is that God in the New Testament God exalts Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so it's by God's sending, God's empowering and then God's raising and exalting Jesus to his own right hand mm-hmm. that it's the action of God, it's the will of God that results in Jesus having divine status and being worthy of worship. Sometimes you almost you almost put it that way.
0: Yes, I think that's fair enough, and and for earliest Christians, that was a deeply satisfying way of putting it, because it um, it it expressed, right. to use our term, it expressed their fundamentally monotheistic stance, that everything goes back to this one God, everything goes back to this one this one God, the enlargement of their devotional practice which i referred to as this, uh, you know, from 1980 onward, this, this uh, unique uh, mutation in Jewish uh, uh, devotional practice to include Jesus as a second distinguishable figure as, as also rightful recipient of devotion, this unique mutation which produces this kind of dyadic devotional pattern, they uh, do not see as fracturing in any way the uniqueness of the one God they see it as um, uh, authorized and indeed demanded by the one god so their their dyadic devotional pattern has at its roots a fundamentally uh, one god basis
1: it strikes me that a lot of later christians have thought that this was enough that they thought that this way of thinking about jesus in relation to god renders unnecessary the later views about him uh, having a divine nature or being the same god as the father I don't know if you've ever had a chance to um, read anything about or by um, the famous early modern Unitarian Socinus, or the uh, the Polish brethren or the authors of the Rakovian Catechism. But Sosinus, he didn't believe in the Trinity. He didn't believe in the Two Natures doctrine. He didn't even believe in the preexistence of Jesus, although he believed in the virgin birth. Mm. But he, he actually got into a controversy with some of his... Uh, with some other Unitarians, they said these other guys. Uh, there was a guy named Francis David, or that's his anglicized name, Francis David. And this other guy said, "No, you can't worship Jesus. You can only worship God." And Sosinus said, "No, God's exalted him." He quoted uh, from Hebrews: "Let let God's angels worship him." Mm. So he just says, "No, we sh- we should worship him because because of what God has done with him through him and the way that God has raised him." So for him, it just made the Nicene Constantinople. Calcedon, and he it just makes that stuff unnecessary.
0: well, i can't i I can't comment because I say my my headlights uh, extend about as far as <laughs> as the third or fourth century, and uh, and after that, um, I'm reliant upon uh, experts from those periods. But to stay with the early material, I guess I would have a couple of things to say about how how one appropriates uh, Christological discussions of the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. Uh, You know, to start with the negative, their categories are not our categories uh, and are uh, are not actually, I mean, for example, if we say Jesus and God share the same divine nature, I guess one question I would ask is, in modern philosophical terms, what is divine nature? For Aristotle and for people of that period, they seem to have thought of divine nature as some kind of thing, some kind of essence, some kind of stuff of some sort. Do we think of God as being comprised of some kind of stuff? No. So to say Jesus and God share the same nature, you have to say, what do you mean by that? It's not self-evident what divine nature would be. hmm
1: yeah.
0: So their categories are not our categories. It made perfect sense to them, they accepted those categories, and therefore got on with trying to make sense of the world in light of them. And that's fine, that was fine for them to do. They had no other choice, that was, That was being responsible but those are not our categories they will not serve us well so we we can't simply echo their terminology and their categories we we can take some instruction from their efforts to try to make sense of faith in their intellectual setting and then try to make sense of it in an equivalent kind of conscientious way in our setting but their categories don't serve our needs today that's just a fact secondly however to put the positive spin on it Early Christians in the Nicene period and so on didn't develop their two natures, one being, two persons. They didn't develop all this kind of language just because they were sitting around with time on their hands and said, let's see if we can come up with some really intricate stuff that will really puzzle people in the centuries hereafter. Let's see if we can come up with some mystagogy that will, will, uh, I don't know, uh, really impress subsequent generations. Absolutely not. They were forced to engage these questions. They, were, they, they had no choice but to try to answer the questions because, of the, because other people were raising the questions and were proposing answers to them framed in terms of ancient philosophical categories which seemed to the sort of Nicene Christians to be wrong answers to those questions. So uh, the, the famous one, of course, is Arius. And Arianisms, the various Arian, philosoph- uh, various Arian theologians of the, particularly third, late third century and early fourth century, they are the ones who begin picking up these philosophical categories and begin drawing deductions, saying, well, there can only be one God. And so Jesus has to be something other than God. We know that we're supposed to worship him, so let's think of him as being a God also, but a different kind of God from the one God. Well, that struck other people as saying, well, wait a minute, with the best will in the world, don't you have two gods then? You have a big god and a little god. That's two. We can't have two gods. We're monotheists. But but, but it seemed as though those categories, the philosophical categories that Arius was working with and, and other people at the time were working with were the inescapable intellectual categories of the day. It, it just did not occur to many people to say, let's just throw that aside and think in other ways. They had no choice but to face questions of how to make Christian faith meaningful in the intellectual categories that were the accepted dominant ones of their time. And if you don't like Arius, if you say, well, gee, hmm, that kind of makes my skin crawl to talk about a, a big god and a little god, t- two gods, then how are you gonna answer it? What are you gonna do while still working within those same categories? And that's where the, the so-called Nicene pattern goes as they think, well, Arius's answer is unacceptable but we have no choice but to work with these questions because it didn't occur to them there were any other ways of framing the issue. So you come up with this, uh, what will seem to moderns complicated or hoary type uh, thing that you have in the Nicene Creed, you know, not, and then when you get to Chalcedon, not divided, not uh, not conflated, uh, and so on, because they're trying to come up with a way of avoiding. What seemed to them the multiplying of deities that resulted from the alternative approach, the Arian approach. So, precisely, the Nicene Chalcedonian complexity, which will seem complex to us moderns because we don't work with those categories, but in their own time, it, they were struggling to try to avoid precisely a multiplying of deities and were trying to come up with a way of articulating a thoroughgoing monotheism while recognizing that it had to include Jesus as well as a fully distinguishable figure, and indeed had to include the Holy Spirit in their view.
1: If I understand your view, it's that there's the New Testament and, and early Christianity, and then as far as the classical outlook, you know, the 381 Council, the 451 Council, that was Christians understanding the New Testament as best they could in their context, but then our context isn't their context. Imagine that you're counseling a, uh, a young Christian. I'm confused about this Trinity, Jesus, God. I don't know what's going on here. Mm. What would be your counsel to them? Should they go to the New Testament and focus on that? Should they go to the, uh, you know, read Gregory of Nazianzus, or should they read something in the 20th or 21st century?
0: Well, I would say that that the biblical documents, the, the, the New Testament and other early Christian documents of that early period, are perhaps once again, more instructive, ironically, for moderns, more accessible for moderns than the subsequent theological texts of the third, fourth, fifth centuries and so on. Because of intellectual developments, there's a sense in which in the modern kind of or postmodern, however you want to describe it, world of our time, we aren't so much um, working with the classical Greek philosophical categories of form and essence and so on, and so the world is a more diverse place intellectually for us. There are, you know, in, in, in this sort of postmodern world, there are various intellectual categories. We aren't so much essentialists anymore. We, we tend to think, as I said, you know, if, I were to, if you ask the question, what do you mean by divine nature? I think most of us would have a hard time answering that question. We would almost inevitably fall into answering it in terms of what you would think of as um, attributes or functions rather than an essence of any kind. So there's a sense in which I think our intellectual cultural developments, ironically, may make the language and terminology of the New Testament and the the ways in which early Christians thought about it more accessible and perhaps more immediately meaningful than than some of the subsequent uh, theological developments. In my God in the New Testament book, in the final, in the conclusion, one of the things I propose is that perhaps theologians ought to go back and start with New Testament material and work with the categories and the dynamics of New Testament early Christian texts instead of starting in the 4th or 5th century with Nicaea and with the Cappadocian fathers to go back to the first couple of centuries, to look at Justin, I mean, and and look at, uh, at other figures of this early period as well as the New Testament writings who I think are refreshing it will be challenging to some people, but, but refreshing and perhaps more accessible. So to the young Christian, I would say, you know, uh, who, who's basically saying, give me, give me an, an initial stepping stone on which to place myself. I would say that the categories in the New Testament, the one God who made the world, sent his son into the world, in New Testament language. Uh, the son through whom he made the world, he sent the son into the world who became for us human in, 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 and obedient to God's purposes. This Jesus God has exalted to heavenly glory and now requires that he be recognized, proclaimed, and reverenced accordingly. And uh, we do so. He came forth to present us, as Revelation says, to present us to his God and Father, to make us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. Uh, In the language of Revelation 5, we therefore reverence him uh, as the one through whom God has uh, achieved redemption, and who is now, who holds the book of redemption, uh, and, and uh, we reverence him accordingly. That, it seems to me, is not very, doesn't require a lot of philosophical training, It doesn't re- require a lot of complicated, sophisticated stuff. Uh, I also think that to speak in those categories will make the communication of Christian faith much easier to non-Christians. I mean, to use this kind of language, it seems to me, will provide a much, uh, a much better basis for engaging fellow monotheists, such as uh, our Jewish cousins and our Muslim cousins, for whom the categories of the 4th and 5th century are just utter nonsense. And that's the language they use, just utter nonsense or blasphemy and they continually misunderstand it because it it isn't their categories either. But to talk about, to say things like, we reverence Jesus because God requires it, that doesn't require any philosophical understanding to engage it. The question is, is that so or is it not? We can argue about that, we can talk about that, but the terms of the argument are perfectly clear.
1: Dr. Hurtado, thank you for talking with us.
2: You're
0: welcome.
1: This week's Thinking Music has been the track Come Away by Jim Rooster from the album The Wilderness I Want. You can hear this whole track or download it at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And before we go, my sincere thanks to Cheryl and also to Sean for their donations through PayPal. If you've made it this far in the episode, maybe you'd like to make a donation one time or monthly to the Trinity's podcast. You can do that through the orange buttons on any blog post. And don't forget to talk back at the blog post, in the Facebook group, or by audio feedback.